Tonight on The Readout. Why not release the tax returns that aren't involved in the audit? I have very big tax returns. I'm sure you've seen the picture where the returns are yeah. literally from the floor to up to here. Tremendous cash flow. You don't learn much from tax returns. The House Ways and Means Committee votes on what to do with Trump's tax returns. Their decision could come down at any moment. Plus, a caucus in chaos. Republican House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is still struggling to land the speaker's gig as new questions surface about the possibly made-up background of an incoming member of his caucus. And later, the Griot's White House correspondent April Ryan on her new book, Black Women Will Save the World, profiling leaders and activists on the front lines of social and political change. We begin tonight with one of the biggest political scandals in the history of the nation. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Okay, no, not really. But it actually was the biggest scandal ever for a lot of Republicans who sunk their teeth into a chance to take down a Democratic president. It was arguably the dawn of the toxic, hyperpartisan Republican trolling strategy with the help of right-wing talk radio and an outspoken clan of Clinton enemies, not to mention a very, very thirsty mainstream media. Remember, President Clinton came close to getting indicted over this stuff. But on his final full day in office, he reached an arrangement with a special prosecutor to avoid being prosecuted for his misleading statements about Monica Lewinsky. Part of that agreement meant a five-year suspension of his bar license. So a president lying about a sexual relationship? Okay, I guess. But you know what feels like the bigger scandal? Hmm? Oh, right. Pressuring elected officials and trying to intimidate the vice president into overturning an election hyping up a deadly mob to storm the U.S. Capitol and force lawmakers to hide and run for their lives, including the vice president, who they were threatening to hang. Oh, and striking at the central tenet of American democracy, namely the peaceful transfer of power to a president that the people elected. I mean, seriously, what's the bigger scandal? Lying about an affair or attempting to overthrow the U.S. government by force? An outrage that came with casualties. I mean, it's not a sexual affair, but okay, come on. And yet, here we are, waiting with bated breath to see if the DOJ is going to do something about Trump, as those who howled over Clinton remain silent about Trump's transgressions. Still, this is less than a jolly holiday season for Trump, and not because the so-called woke mob is canceling Christmas. They're not. And not because he thinks Santa Claus cannot be black. He can but because Trump's luck may finally be running out. Yesterday, the House January 6th committee unanimously voted to recommend that Trump be criminally prosecuted, finding that he likely violated at least four or maybe even six federal statutes, including aiding and abetting an insurrection. NBC News has also confirmed breaking news from Punchbowl, saying the committee is cooperating with the Justice Department's special counsel, who's charged with overseeing investigations into Donald Trump. It's not the only legal headache for the former president. Far from it. The DOJ is already criminally investigating Trump for his actions after the election, along with his retention of classified documents at his Mar-a-Lago estate after his presidency ended. In Georgia, a criminal inquiry is focused on Trump's push to have the election results altered there. In New York, the, the attorney general is suing him for fraud. And earlier this month, a jury in New York found the Trump organization guilty of all charges in a sweeping 
15-year tax fraud scheme that prosecutors said was orchestrated by top executives at his company. And Trump is about to take a hit on that one thing, the thing that he is most sensitive about and shifty about, too, his tax returns. He's engaged in a years-long battle with Democrats to keep those returns secret. I will absolutely give my return, but I'm being audited now for two or three years, so I can't do it until the audit is finished, obviously. Just under audit. I'll release them when the audit's completed. My tax returns are very simple. They're under a minor audit, routine audit, as they have been for many years. Every year I get audited. At the appropriate time, I will release them. But right now I'm under routine audit. Nobody cares. You know, the only one that cares about my tax returns are the reporters. Okay? You don't think the American public is concerned? No, I don't think so. I, I won. I mean, I became president. No, I don't think they care at all. But his taxes. Right now, the House Ways and Means Committee is meeting on whether to publicly release them. The one thing he has never, ever, ever wanted. Joining me now is Andrew Weissman, former FBI general counsel and a former senior member of the Mueller probe, and Tara Setmeyer, senior advisor for the Lincoln Project. Thank you both for being here. Andrew, I do want to start with you. Uh, and I mean, the, the tax thing feels, in a, in a sense, like the least of Trump's worries. But we're going to focus on it anyway, because there has been this longstanding desire for the public and the Democrats to see them like every other president has shown them. Here's what Trump has said about flouting tax laws in the past. As a businessman and real estate developer, I have legally used the tax laws to my benefit. I have brilliantly used those laws. I have a fiduciary responsibility to pay no more tax than is legally required, like anybody else. Or, put another way, to pay as little tax as legally possible. I mean... The thing is, the fact that he admitted it means that he understood that a wealthy man, even if he is not really a billionaire because he never was, can flout tax laws and get away with it. He just admitted it openly. Um, what do you th- what do you think? There is there some legal jeopardy at some point for the fact that this man clearly has not paid taxes in a really long time? I actually see this like you do, Joy, which is I think this is. Interesting. I think there will be a political hit for the release of these returns, but I think it's not impossible, but unlikely to be a legal hit. And the reason I say that is it's very hard to bring tax prosecutions. These the mens rea, the intent standard is that you have to show that the defendant knew what they were doing was illegal. That's usually not the law, um, and. Um, You know, there will be lawyers and accountants, as corrupt as they might be, who will have blessed the tax returns. And so Donald Trump will be able to say, you know, I relied on that. Um, That's just sort of I hate to say it. That's sort of the game that's played. Mm -hmm. Um, And but I do think it's important to remember that we're really operating in two fronts. There's the legal front and there's sort of the public education um, uh, front where it's really educating the public about what this man is about. And what the beauty of the January 6th committee is they operated on both fronts, um, where they really changed, at least for me, how I thought about January 6th and saw it as this overarching scheme. And yet they also developed tons of evidence. And, you know, that's the thing we're going to be all be focusing on tomorrow is all of the new pieces of evidence on Donald Trump and also underlings who might be able to be flipped. 
So I do think that the tax returns are going to be important, but probably more in terms of um, the sort of outrage of, you know, people like you and me who are sitting there <laughs> going, I pay a lot more taxes and I certainly don't make that much money. So, you know, I think it will have that kind of effect. Right. I mean, the last time he paid taxes is when he worked for the same company that I do right now. When he was on The Apprentice, they paid him a W-2 like I get. So that's when he paid taxes. You know, Tara, and I, I and this is why I think there, Trump, the, the problem is scale, right? He seems to have just been a, a crime scene walking for decades. And so the tax thing winds up being more you know, of a humiliation, to Andrew's point, because he's tried to portray himself as a billionaire. He clearly wasn't. I think we now know that that was never true. But I think what's kind of interesting in it and where it does sort of dovetail with what the January 6th committee and what the special counsel is looking at is the tax returns could explain to you who he owes. It could explain to you who might have influence over him. I feel like the media and reporters are going to be have a lot more more interest in what comes out of these tax returns because they can then go through them if they if and when they're released. And I assume they're going to be because every other president has had them made public, that that will be something that will, you know, people like yourself will be able to make hay with because it'll tell you kind of who his influences and his negative influences and who his debts are to. Yeah, I mean, we we saw this with the um, Pulitzer Prize winning reporting by The New York Times a few years ago um, when they were able to delve into his taxes um, from previous years. And it's clear that Donald Trump has been a professional scofflaw his entire life, and he wears it with a badge of valor. And this time, I don't think he's worried about as much, uh, you know, where he took tax breaks or what he did. I mean, remember, he's shameless. He took a tax break after 9-11 for one of his buildings. And that didn't really apply to him. And it was like a small tax break. But it was like, really? I mean, you know, he's just he's just shameless. But he's more concerned about, to your point, Joy, his net worth and how much money he actually has, because the worst thing for him is for people to know that he's not as rich as he actually is and that he's actually, um, you know, n- not the, the the 10 billion dollar man, successful businessman that he claims that he is and that he rode that wave of that B.S., um, portrayal of himself into the presidency. And so that's what he's the most fearful of. I mean, if you listen to what Mary Trump says, if you ever read her book, his biggest fear is being a broke loser. And so, you know, I think that's what he's more fearful of. You know, to, to Andrew's point, I, I really don't think that there's going to be any legal repercussions, unfortunately. Uh, we saw what happened with the Trump Organization uh, trial in New York City. It was a slap on the wrist, really. Andrew, um, I mean, uh, Weisselberg was willing to go to jail for a couple of months, and he's one of those ta- you know, tax accountant attorneys that signed off on things that could easily take the fall. Um, but what this really will do will just show again who Donald Trump is, that he really is not the successful businessman that he is. And that embarrassment, I think, will hurt him more than anything, because it will show show that he's actually weak and a loser. And that is his biggest, biggest fear. Absolutely. Uh, let, let me I'm return to this. Uh, what what uh, my, my lovely the lovely Rachel Maddow calls the doorstop that's coming. It's coming tomorrow uh, and it's going to be very, very long. It's going to be our holiday reading for the for all of us nerds. Uh, yeah, we're going to read it. Um, it. But I found a couple of things interesting, Andrew, in what the, the kind of the dogs that didn't hunt, the things that don't seem to be there. Axios laid out a few of them. Um, 
Tony Ornato is an interesting figure here in terms of what the Secret Service knew and didn't know. He he testified they had no recollection of Trump ever being angry or physically violent, despite multiple other witnesses indicating the president genuinely was irate, heated, angry, and, and insistent. But uh, what, what's important about that is this question of whether Donald Trump wanted to physically go inside the Capitol and accompany the mob into the chamber to intimidate the vice president in person. That seems important to me and whether the Secret Service knew that that was his intention in advance and whether anyone, Tony Renato, having been, for, you know, the part of that organization. Do, do you share that interest in seeing if the larger report will give us more on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that is going to be, if I were Jack Smith and his team, they're going to be looking very closely at that. Um, because one of the things that they're going to be doing, just as you just did, is look at sort of these lesser players to see, can they be charged and, um, to put it in the vernacular, flipped? Can they become witnesses? And if they don't, fine. They still will be held accountable. Um, it's pretty clear from the executive summary that the January 6th committee thinks that Renato is a total liar. I mean, that's, that, you know, they just go on and on about it. You know, he's they're saying that he parrots the Mark Meadows line in his book that, you know, uh, Donald Trump was only speaking metaphorically. Mm -hmm. How Mark Meadows would know that, that it was definitely metaphorical, you know, it beats me. I mean, that's, you know, he doesn't have a crystal ball. Um, but I think there's probably going to be a lot of evidence to dispute um, Tony Arnato's, um views and what he said. And so one of the key things that I think you look for is these sort of false statements and perjury um, that has been made by witnesses to the January 6th committee because it gives you leverage um, to bring those charges and try and get them to tell the truth. And to your point, if he flipped and there was this sort of direct evidence about what happened in the car that is sort of also now sort of reluctantly he comes to, you know, he sees, you know, the come to Jesus moment where he says, OK, I will tell you what happened. That's really bad for Donald Trump. I mean, it will corroborate um, Cassidy Hutchinson. And it's mm -hmm. a really bad fact um, that he wanted to be there you know, leading the troops. It wasn't enough for him to just command it. He was actually going to be on the battlefield um, with them, as he said he was going to be. And I wonder, Tara, if there's any deterrent effect, if other people that were part of the scheme um, at a higher level, that not the grunts who went into the Capitol, but people who are, are well-known names in the Republican Party start getting indicted. I wonder if there is some sort of deterrent effect to getting back on that train again. He is running again for president. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've already seen the very muted response from Republicans uh, to the January 6th committee's recommendations and these criminal referrals. Um, and uh, that for good reason, especially on the House side, because there's a few House members there who were all up in it that could be in some trouble. And um, that makes them very uncomfortable. At least Mitch McConnell came out sort of in his Mitch McConnell sort way of. and said, well, the, the American people know who was responsible for that day. And yet Mitch McConnell said that he would still support Donald Trump if he were the nominee in 2024. Right. So, I mean, you know, they yeah. speak out of both sides of their mouths on this. And I just want to say a quick thing about Tony Ornato. You know, Tony Ornato uh, used to work for the Secret Service. He got a cushy job at the White House and then a cushy job back at the Secret Service. This is unprecedented. And he became a true believer. And frankly, his um, inability to be truthful and forthcoming in this entire ordeal is really a poor reflection on what the Secret Service's mission and motto is. And that is an area that I think needs to be delved into even further. There should 
be maybe an inspector general investigation into what happened there with the Secret Service, because yep. it really shines a really terrible light on what should be an honorable organization. And then Tony they Renato's deleted their phones. And then they deleted their phones. I'm sorry, but it just it, there's too many things, too many threads. Andrew Weissman, Tara Setmeyer, thank you both very much. Up next on The Readout, will the real George Santos please stand up? An incoming House Republican is under scrutiny over what appears to be several fabricated aspects of his biography and resume. The Readout continues after this. Hi everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. The Democratic Party under President Biden had a strong midterm showing. I mean, they might have even maintained Democratic control of the House, if not for New York and Florida. In New York, Democrats failed to win all but one of the state's competitive House races. Republicans won all four House seats on Long Island, including two pickups, which happens to include MAGA Republican George Santos. Until this weekend, all that was really known about Santos was what he told the press and voters. He said he graduated from Baruch College with a bachelor's degree in economics and finance. His personal bio on the NRCC website claims that he gained business experience working his way up through the financial industry at companies like Citigroup and Goldman Sachs. That bio also claims that he not only attended Baruch College, but also New York University. Santos, who was gay, also claimed in an interview with Public Radio last month that some of his employees died at the Pulse nightclub massacre in Orlando, Florida. Well, apparently pretty much all of that, everything I just mentioned, might be a fabrication. On Monday, the New York Times, looking to profile this rising star of the America First Party, could not corroborate those claims. Baruch College has no trace of a George Santos graduating from its school in 2010, nor does NYU. Those big-name banks can't seem to find any trace of him in their records either. And those employees that allegedly died in the Pulse massacre, the New York Times found that none of the 49 victims appear to have worked at the various firms named in his biography. This will come as no surprise to the readers of the, the North Shore Leader, a local Long Island paper that covers part of his district, which warned voters about Santos when they endorsed his Democratic challenger, Robert Zimmerman. They wrote that Santos boasts like an insecure child, but he's most likely just a fabulist, a fake. The powerful chairman of Nassau County's Republican committee said that the allegations were serious and merit clarification. You know who hasn't addressed the allegations? The leaders of the House Republican Caucus, Kevin McCarthy, whose soon-to-be majority is so razor-thin that he needs Santos in Congress. McCarthy also happens to need him if he wants to be Speaker. 
Mr. Santos just happened to tweet this endorsement of McCarthy for speaker on Sunday night after the Times told him they were about to publish their bombshell findings. Mr. Santos's lawyer claimed that the article was uh, attempting to smear his good name with defamatory allegations. What he didn't do was provide any evidence that disproves the New York Times and their findings. I'm joined now by former Republican Congressman David Jolly and Dana Milbank, columnist for The Washington Post and author of The Destructionist, the 25-year crack-up of the Republican Party. David, uh, it strikes me that Kevin McCarthy is he's got a, a margin so thin. I just want to just by comparison. In 2011, John Boehner, who was a quite skilled politician, had 242 Republicans in his caucus. In 2015, Paul Ryan, not quite as skilled, but the media loved him, 247 Republicans. McCarthy, it, it's looking like he might have 222 a razor-thin caucus. He needs 218 votes. The last time he did sort of a test run, he only got 188. So he's not even in a position to criticize this guy who might have a completely made-up entire biography. Your thoughts? Yeah, that's the important subtext. And I would suggest that John Boehner and Paul Ryan had one other thing that Kevin McCarthy doesn't, and that's the respect of their colleagues in caucus. And Kevin McCarthy simply doesn't have that. So he doesn't have a way to get to 218 votes. Look, let's be clear. Kevin McCarthy has more votes for speaker than anybody in Washington, D.C. right now. But he doesn't have enough. And so you've seen McCarthy make what many are calling this corrupt bargain to try to get to 218. He had isolated Marjorie Taylor Greene. Now he's elevating her. He had said that the DHS secretary should not be impeached. Now he says the secretary should be impeached. And now things are going backwards. Right. With Lauren Boebert saying, well, I might have some questions. And with Santos now, his entire integrity on the line and his credibility, the window quickly closing on George Santos to be defined as anything but a fraud in the U.S. Congress. But Kevin McCarthy needs him and expect McCarthy and his allies to circle the wagons around Santos, at least through January 3rd or the following days to try to secure the speakership. You know, what's 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 kind of fascinating. You look at it, Dana. The only reason that Democrats didn't hold the House outright, okay? Because this, you know, because of the end of Roe v. Wade and, and candidate quality issues and Trump, Democrats are actually in a really good position this year. But, you know, those illegally gerrymandered seats in Florida and these stupidly gerrymandered seats that pit Democrats mm -hmm. incumbents against each other in New York, that is why Kevin McCarthy has a majority at all. Um, but he's got a majority that's filled with characters to be nice. This guy, Santos, made up an entire life. He might as well make like baseball cards like Trump did when he was a, an astronaut. <laughs> um, and even, you know, trying to take advantage of the Pulse nightclub massacre. Your thoughts on all of this mess? You know, Madison Cawthorn may be uh, on his way out, but we have new fabulous uh, coming in to replace him. And just think about it. This guy was actually in a fairly competitive race, so he was vetted reasonably well. And yes, maybe the Democrats and maybe the media fell down a bit uh, on the vetting, but a lot of this was known. It was known that uh, the SEC had gone after the company he actually did work for uh, as a Ponzi scheme. So this sort of thing was known because it was a competitive race. But consider there are perhaps uh, 
a hundred others out there uh, who have potentially uh, similar stories uh, that we didn't follow because they weren't necessarily under the microscope. Uh, and that's what's happened because so few of these seats are competitive. Uh, you can get into, uh, slide your way into Congress without the proper vetting. Uh, another uh, representative-elect uh, by the name of Collins just uh, tried to hire as his uh, chief of staff a guy who was recently arrested for uh, kicking a dog. and, and uh, uh, injuring the poor animal, um, uh, you know, and you know, we know the names of uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, Lauren Boebert, but there are many others uh, that are that are yet to be known that are going to keep popping up. And the problem now is to get back to what you were uh, saying to David. There is uh, Kevin McCarthy can afford to lose no more than four crazies on any <laughs> given vote. And the problem is his caucus of two hundred twenty-two is about two thirds crazy. It's. It, I mean, and I think at some point we have to start asking ourselves, I know there's this whole veneration of the voter thing that we're all supposed to do, but there's something going on in terms of the candidate quality that voters on the Republican side are willing to—they're winning primaries. Yeah. You know, these people are actually getting through primaries. They're not being forced upon Republican voters by some, you know, elite. This guy also has issues with finance. We don't know where he got the $700,000 that he lent to his campaign because he was so broke, he apparently was, you know— getting evicted just a, year, a few years ago for not paying his rent. As recently as 2017, he was evicted for skipping out on $10,000 in rent. He's going to the white nationalist uh, luncheon with the young Republicans. He's off January 6th. Um, where did he get $700,000? It feels like there's an ethics—he's an ethics issue walking, and there's nothing that can be done about it. This is for you, David. Yeah, Joy, look— it's an indictment of today's GOP, a party that elevates the ignorant, the racist, the fabulous, and the fraud. And we're seeing that. I mean, Dana mentions Madison Cawthorn, Lauren Boebert, and her history that we well know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, her white nationalism and ignorance, Matt Gates, the credible charges of sex trafficking. But yet, these are the people, and this is important to the conversation around Kevin McCarthy, that don't need Kevin McCarthy. Because in today's Republican Party, they're able to create a national constituency that provides them the financing, the social media support, and the affirmation of those behaviors that ultimately allow them to succeed. This is where, when people talk about, will the party pass Trump? It's not about Donald Trump. It's no. about Republicanism mm. in 2022. Uh, Dana, last word to you. I mean, the party has taken Trump and gone lower. These, th these candidates are unbelievable. Lower and lower, and now we now we're seeing uh, Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates are attacking Marjorie Taylor Greene over the Jewish space lasers. And so just, I mean, they're saying, um, uh, look, she's even crazier than I am. So that when, when you have a competition and when you keep invoking Jewish space lasers, uh, I'm a little worried that uh, Kevin McCarthy is going to get incinerated by one of those things. <laughs> I'm just thankful Herschel Walker didn't enter that mix. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. And thank you, voters. David Jolly and Dana Milbank. Woo, Lord. Uh, still ahead. Jealousy, lies, and backstabbing. Harry and Meghan are accused are accused of washing the dirty laundry, washing the dirty laundry of the royals in public. They say they're just trying to shine a light on the vile racism that they've been forced to endure. Stay with us.
Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The Weeknd. We want to get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening. It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in. Conversation we begin and that you continue all week long. The Weeknd, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Padgett, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe. If there's one thing you know about the royal family, it's that they do not like it when their dirty laundry is laid bare. The firm, or the institution as it's called, is very controlling of its messaging, and that became clear during the divorce of King Charles and Princess Diana, the people's princess. Flash forward to today, after Prince Harry, Diana's youngest son, and his wife, Meghan Markle, released their much-awaited Netflix documentary series. In it, they pull back the curtain on how their courtship was treated by the royal family and British tabloids. Aside from seeing their adorable love story up close, you also learn how needlessly cruel the institution can be and exactly how far it will go to work with the British tabloids to elevate some members of the royal family and diminish others. That comes as no surprise to anyone who followed the tragic life of Princess Diana. Instead of welcoming Meghan with open arms, Meghan, she was viewed as a threat to the future monarch. She was a woman who just looked like most of the people in the Commonwealth. And they somehow, for some reason, couldn't find the capacity to protect her, to represent her, to stand by her, to take on vested power in her name, to to fight for her. Anyone inside that system, whether it's my family, whether it's staff, whether it's PR, wherever it is, have already missed an enormous opportunity with my wife and how far that would go globally. If the royal family needed any further evidence of the kind of misogyny, racism, and unbridled hatred Meghan Markle has been subjected to, they need look no further than The Sun, a British tabloid owned by Rupert Murdoch, of course. Last week, it published a disgusting column by Jeremy Clarkson, the former host of the BBC car show Top Gear. Clarkson wrote that he hated Meghan Markle on a cellular level and added that he dreamt of the day when she, Meghan, is made to parade naked through the streets of every town in Britain while the crowds chant shame and throw lumps of excrement at her. The comments, which were a reference to an infamous Game of Thrones episode, were widely condemned. Clarkson subsequently claimed that he was horrified that his clumsy words will cause so much hurt. But he never apologized for what he actually said. Joining me now is Dr. Shola Masshogbamimu, lawyer, activist, and author of This Is Why I Resist. And Dr. Shola, it is always great to see you. Let's talk about this. I have watched the series. I've binged the series, um, the Megan and Harry series. And I, I felt like I knew, you know, um, my husband was born in, in Great Britain, lived there for, for very many years. And I, I felt like I knew 
um, that there is racism there. It's different from the racism here. But wow. And I knew that there was like jealousy and envy inside the the firm to the newer, sort of fresher, interesting members. But wow, wow, and wow. Talk about what's going on with Meghan Markle and the royals. I think, first of all, there is no difference, okay, between the racism that plays out in the United States and the racism that plays out in the United Kingdom. There is an institutional power in place that supports a system that allows white privileged men like Jeremy Claxon to get published with such, you know, vitriol because there is a system in place to that targets those that it wishes to oppress by racializing and marginalizing them. This is white privilege, everybody. Welcome to white privilege. And the reality here when it comes to the royal family, let me tell you, my, my biggest takeaway, aside from their beautiful love story, of course, is that the real villain in the persecution of Harry and Meghan is the royal family. The royal family is the most powerful and oldest family in Britain, right? And one and part of one of the, the oldest institutions. They tacitly fed, approved, turned a blind eye to a toxic combination of misogynoir, racism, and sexism against Meghan Markle, a member of their own family. Now, people, please, how am I meant to trust the king, the Charles, his queen consort, Camilla, or Prince William, or any of the senior royals, when they cannot even protect their own. If they cannot stand up and support their own in terms of mental health, why should I take them seriously when they talk about mental health? If they cannot address issues of racism within their own institution, within their own family, why should I trust them for one single second that they're looking out for somebody like me? So yeah. I think that the biggest takeaway is that the family does not want to change. But, but listen, this is 2022, people. And I've always questioned the relevance of the monarchy. It's outrightly incompatible with the hard-fought rights that common people like me, those before me, have fought for. It makes no sense. And they keep abusing the power that they have simply for their own use. The only good thing the royal family have being able to achieve in all of its existence is its own survival. <laughs> well, let me, it's time to let, take that record. Let me, let me play a clip. This is one of the worst things that happened uh, during their uh, life together. This was the on the birth of their son. Take a look. Archie's just been born. Media, social media starts to sort of take on a life of its own. Someone in the media posting a photograph of a couple with a chimp. And at the top, it said, Royal Baby Leaves Hospital. So that was one of the first things that I saw. I think the, the bigger point that I, that I really took from this is that they have a commonwealth that is 40-some-odd countries that are mostly black countries. And yet, they didn't see the value of having a black princess to represent them. And that was what they allowed to happen to her. Exactly. And not only that, they needed to keep her in a box. I mean, if you, if you recall from the, the interview they did with Oprah, Oprah Winfrey, um, when was that? Last year or so, right? Yeah. And, um, this, this particular interview, one of the things you take away from that is how they take an independent, successful woman and they want to break her down. That makes no sense to me. There is a reason why she had risen to the level she had risen to individually in our own personal capacity. Yeah. She had shown 
uh, you know, passion. She was a campaigner. She spoke out. She's eloquent. She's strong. Why not use those as assets? Right. Because it will take away from those in the royal family who can't match her, just like they yeah. could not match Princess yeah. Diana. That's that it. is the problem. The jealousy she, and envy yeah. is deep, it's deep rooted. It's and it is the same thing that happened with Princess Diana. It's a fascinating series. Shola Mas Shogbamimu, thank you so much for being here. Okay, we're gonna take a quick break. Before we take a break, some breaking news from Capitol Hill. The House Ways and Means Committee has just voted to publicly release the tax returns of former President Donald Trump. He won't like that. We'll be right back. I must begin these very brief remarks by thanking God for delivering me to this point in my professional journey. My life has been blessed beyond measure, and I do know that one can only come this far by faith. History was made this year when Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson became the first black woman to be appointed and confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court, a moment made even more iconic by the fact that standing right beside her during that nomination ceremony was the first black woman vice president, Kamala Harris. That kind of representation after generations of black women being pushed to the sidelines of American power is something veteran White House reporter April Ryan writes about in her new book, Black Women Will Save the World. In the book, Ryan examines the struggles and resilience of black women, as well as her tenure as the longest serving black woman White House correspondent. And joining me now is April Ryan, White House correspondent for The Grio and author of Black Women Will Save the World. And also my friend and soror. Thank you for being here, April. Great to see you. Hello, so uh, thanks for having me. Of course. So let's talk about this book. I mean, you have spent yeah. so much so much time uh, and such a, a storied career covering the White House. But that clip that we just showed, what did it mean to you, setting aside just as a journalist, to see this mm. first black woman Supreme Court justice um, standing beside the first black woman vice president? You know, Joy, I felt seen. I felt seen to have the president of the United States, who happened to be a white man, this nation is still very white male dominated, flanked by two black women in the highest levels in American history, American government, the executive branch, as well as the judicial branch. I felt seen. And to listen to the words of Ketanji Brown Jackson, and this is the, the humanity part. This is not journalism, but as a black woman, it's how I show up every day. To hear her words, she sounded like you and me. We were seen that day. And so many people have often wanted and wondered if we would ever get to these lofty perches. You know, I'm several generations removed from the last known slave in my family. And I know that I know they never dreamed of this. And you know, you think back to Shirley Chisholm, the late great Shirley Chisholm, the first black woman to run for president in 1972. And she said, if you don't have a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. Black women perpetually have that folding chair on their back. But now we own the table, we're convening the table, and we're making decisions at that table in the highest court and just a block away in the White House. 
Well, you know, April, um, when I think about your, the title of your book, Black Women Will Save yeah. the World, I immediately think of voting because, you know, I'm obsessed with voting and getting people to, to vote. Yes. But black women yeah. vote at the highest percentage uh, of yeah. any Americans. And it was black mm-hmm. women who saved Joe Biden, uh, this current mm-hmm. president in South Carolina, a large, huge yeah. turnout of black women. And then he promised that in return, he was going to put a black woman on the Supreme Court. He did that. But there was also a lot of advocacy by black women, a lot of promises prominent yeah. black women who you and I both know, you know, yeah. put a letter together and said, you've got to do this. You made this promise. We want it done. Yeah. And you did it. So talk about black yeah. women in terms of uh, a lot of people say, listen to black women. If you vote like black women, America would be a much more progressive country. Talk about that yeah. aspect of black women saving the world. But you know what? And, and going back to that letter, um, I, I want to really emphasize that letter. That letter came at a time when the Biden team the campaign was trying to figure out where to go next because it was in a transformational moment of George Floyd. That letter really spoke to what Amy Klobuchar said when she pulled out of the race, what the nation was saying. We were in a moment when we didn't know what was up, what was down, but we knew something had to change because black people were on the menu. We were in the street dying. We were marching possibly dying for the right just to be, you know? And I also think about Keisha Lance Bottoms, who saved the candidacy, the, the, the attempt for president for Joe Biden. She did it twice, really. You know, when he was running for, for president and when he was president, when his numbers were low, she came into the White House. She saved him yet again. Only black women, only black women, And, you know, we are so strong. And in these moments, we feel them. And when we serve, and this is what I write in the book, when we serve, we serve out of love and uplift for the community versus our male counterparts who do it out of ego and power. And that's from our friend, uh, Democratic pollster, Cornell Belcher. But when we go to serve and when we lift up communities, we do it out of love. And that's what we're seeing here. Love Mm -hmm. and And uplift because... Yeah. Well, I, ha- I I wouldn't. That would be remiss if I didn't uh, ask you a question about your own role uh, as a pioneering mm. black woman journalist. Um, we just had the January 6th committee um, conclude yeah. that the former president of the United States, who you had some run ins with, uh, there were some very rude moments, uh, you know, that he directed directly at you um, uh, very specifically and at other black woman journalists in the White House. What did you think when you heard the January 6th committee have this final meeting and say that that? president likely committed felonies in attempting to cling to power. Well, you know, Joy, I mean, we've seen a lot of this and we knew it, but we had to go through the process and see what happened and and what uh, would stick. And now the recommendation is going to the Department of Justice. What's going through my mind? Uh, All the unlawful acts uh, skirting around justice is now uh, potentially up for criminal charges, you know, and January 6th was the reality of what I already knew. It wasn't empty threats. It was the reality of the ideology of Donald Trump to save it by any means necessary. So it's now um, in the hands of the Department of Justice. And we have to still yet again wait and see. 
And, and I know that you will be front and center uh, covering uh, this story <laughs> as you do so many others. Yeah. The great April yeah. Ryan, uh, you would give that look in those press conferences. We would just wait to see what you were going <laughs> to. <laughs> we were waiting for you to give that look when you'd be in the uh, audience of giving those pre- uh, during those press conferences. We love you, April Ryan. Thank you very much. Congratulations on the book. Black Women Will Save the World. And we'll be right back. Thanks, Joy. Thank you. Tomorrow is shaping up to be a big day in Washington, with the January 6th committee releasing its full final report. While we already know some of the details, such as criminal referrals for Donald Trump and John Eastman, the report will include hundreds of pages of additional material. In their executive summary released yesterday, the committee teased that the public will gain access to full interview transcripts, which could be a treasure trove. We learned today that the DOJ already has some of those transcripts, and the special counsel has requested all of their materials. And late today, there was word of another major event on the Hill. According to NBC News, officials in Washington are preparing for a possible visit from Volodymyr Zelensky. The Ukrainian president could address a joint session of Congress, though those plans could change due to security. And that is tonight's readout. Get the latest updates on this year's high stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win.